0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Last week we talked a lot about the paradox of the cross, right? Paradox. Paradox, again, is something which goes contrary to or is alongside or off to the side of the ordinary way of thinking. And we live in, and particularly today, the cross has always been paradoxical you know, to to the world. St. Paul said, you know, the cross to the Gentiles is complete absurdity, and to the Jews it's a stumbling block, but to us, the wisdom and the power of God. I want to talk about that part of it tonight, but again, remember the summary from last week, which is that we are, as the good deacon just said, in a real battle for the hearts and minds of, of God's holy people. God's holy people, and we live in a culture that perhaps more than previous cultures, just because of our ability to have so many creature comforts and to create the illusion, um, that we can have, you know, life without, co- you know, we can do a lot of things without consequences, that we can, that comfort is really uh, within our grasp and so on. With all that in mind, we live in a culture that has become very intensely hedonistic. And hedonism is the doctrine, in quotes, doctrine, that Pleasure and happiness are the sole and chief goal of life in this world. And, of course, that runs completely contrary to the theology of the cross, right? Now, again, we all want pleasure and happiness. Now, don't get me wrong, of course we do, but we do know that this is not heaven, that the fullness of that waits for us. And that in the meantime, the Lord is saying, you've got to understand that the cross is the way to that longing in your heart. Not just for passing pleasures, but for the eternal happiness of looking forever into the face of God. He's the one for whom your heart longs. And we're going to talk a little bit about why there is the cross today in this talk. But at the end of the day, the Lord is very clear with us if you are not willing to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. You cannot be my disciple. And that's what we talked about last week, and it is directly opposed to the thinking of the day, so much so that when we do hold up the cross as a church and we say the way to resolve a lot of these issues in our culture is to accept the fact that we just can't do everything we want, that not every pleasure is ours, and that there are just going to be some things that we have to do that are hard. Many people are like, that isn't just like kind of strange or you're a little bit odd, but you're like immoral. You're like really a bad person. You need to go away. In fact, there ought to be laws against you. See, And that's kind of where we are in our culture today. Because hedonism really is a dogma. It's become that in our culture today. So when the church holds up the cross of sacrifice, of saying no to sin, or in any way of, you know, I gave you some of those examples. I mean, some of the really hard stuff where the cross is no longer abstract. where we say to a, are you saying that a woman who has uh, been raped and is now pregnant needs to carry this child's And Yes, we are. We are saying that. That's hard. That's the cross. And that's not abstract and we darn well better be ready to help that woman, carry that cross. We've got to be Simon of Cyrene. But brothers and sisters, we cannot, we should not, we must not take that cross entirely off her shoulders. God has permitted it. I don't know why. It's a terrible thing that's happened to her. But at the end of the day, even when terrible things happen to us, we still have to do what's right. And that's where the cross is no longer an abstraction. It's very real to people. And an awful lot of even Catholics in our pews aren't willing to hold up that cross and say, this is the way, walk in it. And we've got to get over that. So our culture isn't going to be better until we are, until we become more gifted and more skilled at saying the hard things with love and with support, but saying the hard things. And, and, and insisting that people be ready and willing to do them. So that was a little bit of a summary from last week's talk, the paradox of the cross. Paradox, again, something off to the side or different from the ordinary way of thinking. And the ordinary way of thinking is happiness and pleasure are every person's right. And if, if, if that's offended, there ought to be a law, there should be a legal action. The government needs to do something, but by gosh, my happiness is the whole point. We also mentioned another, I think, related cultural issue, which is the equation of kindness with love, right? Now, l- kindness is an aspect of love, but so is rebuke. So is punishment. You know, sometimes when you love people more, you, you're harder on them. We're sometimes, we are sometimes kinder to strangers. You know, when, when, you, when you've got a son or a daughter, you have to sometimes be harder on them because you, you're in that kind of a relationship of intense personal love with them. And love isn't just about kindness. Love is about what's right. Love is about sometimes teaching people to do the hard things, to insist that they do that which they don't feel like doing and so on. So, so we, we, but unfortunately, in our culture, we've kind of equated kindness and love. And so if a person is being tough, Well, that's not kind, and therefore, that's not loving. And I thought God was love, and so you're not like Jesus, even though Jesus could be very unkind at times. One day Jesus said to you and to me, he said, if you with all your sins know how to give your children what is good, how much more your father? Did you hear what he just said to you? If you with all your sins, if you who are wicked, he said, know how to give good gifts to your children. Whoa, that's not very kind, is it? But it is loving. You know. Sometimes the Lord is hard, and he says hard and painful things. And he also says beautiful and consoling things. Both are true about Jesus. And so, but what happens is people screen out in our culture today, oh, well, Jesus wouldn't care if, and out comes the list of things, even though he very clearly does care about them. And he says them in the scriptures. So you see the idea. We're living in this kind of a culture. But until we get right about this, and get clearer about the cross and that the cross really is the best way because it's god's way our culture isn't going to be better it's just going to keep getting worse why because we're the light of the world and if we're not going to shine the world is in darkness jesus didn't say you're a light he didn't say i'm one light among many and then he said to him, you are the light of the world because you're i'm shi- i'm supposed to be shining in you right he didn't say you know you're just one light among many no, if you're not shining and I'm not shining in you, the world is in darkness. You, you want to say, you want to ask or answer the question, why is our culture in such a mess? Look around. We're supposed to be the light. So, and again, I'm not saying this equally of everybody in this room, but you get the idea. Collectively speaking, in the church, we haven't always been clear about our own gospel. And we got to get clearer. And we are. Praise God that you're here tonight. Tonight, I want to talk about the power of the cross. Now, th- what I want to do is, here's my basic outline in, in my mind uh, and on uh, my paper here, just so you know there's a method to my madness, even if it's still madness, all right? I want to talk a little bit about Paradise Lost, some prefigurements of the cross, then I want to talk about the power of the cross as Scripture speaks of it, and a little bit of from our own experience. And then I want to finally then give us a kind of a prescription. So all in the letter P, right? if you're taking notes. So the first one I want to talk about is Paradise Lost. Why the cross? You know, there is this mystery of suffering and this mystery of the cross. Why doesn't God just wave his hand and do away with all this pain? This agony? Why doesn't God, who could solve everything, just ride down on a lightning bolt and say, I'm here! Here's the deal! Take it or leave it and we're done, right? And he just, with a wave of the hand, just solves everything. See why doesn't he? All right. So. Now this is you might call this in the in the philosophical uh, question arena the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. Right? See, very often, by the way, atheists. This is one of their chief arguments, isn't it? If your God is so loving and so powerful, how come this world is in such a mess? Now, of course, I want to ask the atheist: Where did you get this indignity? From you have a sense of right and wrong. Where does that come from? You know, right and wrong is a metaphysical thing, right? You don't find right and wrong out to lunch together, walking down the street. It's a a sense of right and wrong. Where does that come from? See, but that's a different lecture. I do love the question that uh, Cardinal Cardinal Pell placed to an atheist who raised that issue. Why is there evil? Why is there suffering? He says, well, I will answer your question if you will answer mine. Why is there love? Why is there loyalty? Why is there generosity and sacrifice? Why is there anything at all? So when we look at this question of suffering and evil, there are mysteries that are beyond our ability to answer. But go with me for a moment, though. Why the cross? Why suffering and death? Why didn't God just come down and just fix everything and kind of undo Adam and Eve's decision? And isn't that really the answer I just gave you? In order to do that, God would, in effect, have to undo their decision, disrespect their freedom, and say to them, well, you're just a bunch of idiots. You don't really know any better, so I'm just gonna do everything for you. Now, parents, would that be any way to raise your own kids? You're, You're too dumb, you're too stupid, you'll never make the right choice, so I'm making all your decisions for you, and I'll even tie your shoe and wipe your nose really is that is that see but at the end of the day listen this goes back to what we talked a little bit about last week i don't have a simple answer for the problem of evil except this god made you and me free and he's very serious about it now why why because he wants lovers he wants sons and daughters not slaves and your yes only means anything if you really could say no and that God couldn't just come away and undo it all and you know, say, well, I don't, I don't like your nose, so I'm, I'm overruling it. See? So at the end of the day, it's a very stunning thing that God does. He makes us free. Why? I don't know. I do know this much, that apparently our yes is so precious to God that he's willing to take a lot of no's to get a few yeses. That is how precious and wonderful the yes that you give to God is. When you say yes, God is willing to risk everything for that yes. I'm talking to the young people a little bit last week about dating. I remember as a young man having to take the risk. I said the risk. (laughs) Now look, today I'm old, white, and fat. I used to be young, tan, and trim. But... (laughs) When I was in high school, um, I was very thin, though. I just had no self-confidence. and I remember being extremely... I had to get a date for the junior prom. Major crisis, you know. And I had to go ask a girl. Anyway, I I sort of vetted. I I knew her brother, so I said, do you think she would, you know, her name was Paula. Do you think that she'd be willing to go out? Well, hmm. Let me do some research, she said. (laughs) But anyway... I finally, and she said yes. But you know, it was a big risk, and I got some turndowns. I got some nose ladies. All right? You know, be, be kind. <laughs> it hurts. But you know, God, I'm not trying to reduce God to some silly teenager like I was, but there is this magnificent dignity that you and I as human beings and the angels have, that we have the capacity to say yes, but we also have the capacity to say no, and God will respect our choice. Now, I will say this, though, when we get back to why the cross. Well, we are living, my brothers and sisters, in paradise lost. We are not living in paradise. God did have plan A. It's called paradise. Fruit hanging from the tree, naked but not ashamed. Um, Perfect climate, no ice, no snow. You know, 74 degrees all day long, every day. Okay, you get the point. Adam and Eve said they wanted a better deal. (laughs) Welcome to the better deal. Adam and Eve, now listen, God set it up for them. He said, look, here's the deal. Paradise is all yours. There's only one thing I ask. Don't go to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And don't take from it. Because if you do, suffering and death will come upon you in a moment. Now, he didn't necessarily mean they would drop dead. But he said that, listen, knowing evil and i'm going to get back to that word in a minute knowing evil will bring to you a terrible suffering and a terrible death i want you simply to trust me trust me trust me now you know the story i don't need to go through adam but let's talk about let's look at the title of that tree for a moment the know the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we who are heirs to the kind of the Cartesian revolution, we live on the dark side of the Cartesian divide. For us, knowing usually involves some sort of intellectual notion. We know something in our head. But in the ancient world, and before the Cartesian revolution and so on, knowing was, had a much more experiential sense. To know in the Bible was not just simply to know something intellectually, usually. It was almost always to have deep, intimate experience of the thing or person known. So to know was much richer and deeper than we tend to use the word today. We live up in our heads. But to know in the Bible, again, deep, intimate personal experience of the thing or person known. Now therefore, to know evil, that's the problem of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want you Adam and Eve to experience and have intimate personal experience of evil. The word know again, just to make it plain, Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. You notice they didn't probably have just an intellectual conversation that evening, all right? Deep, intimate, personal. So the Lord is saying, Adam and Eve, please, would you please trust me? I will tell you what is good and I will tell you what is evil and just trust me. Now, you've all raised kids, those of you who are older anyway. Come on. You know that kid. You can tell that kid, that stove is hot. Don't touch that stove. They're going to try to touch it, right? You can tell them until you're blue in the face, but very often kids are like that, right? There's just something about us. But Adam and Eve had this, okay, we just, we just stay away from that tree. That's fine. But God gave them that warning, but then Satan came. And he said, did God really say He sowed the seed of doubt, first of all. Did God really say? See why it's important to know your faith? And why being vague and uncertain is just not enough? That's why the Institute of Catholic Culture, that's why so many ways you've got to lay hold of the truth of God. And not just know what He says, but why it makes sense. Amen? Study, grow, pray every day, read Scripture, grow in a deeper knowledge of what God has taught and why it makes sense. All right. Did God really say? And then it's not just did God really, but it's a rhetorical thing. Isn't he being unrealistic? Did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Now, Satan is trying to make God look unreasonable. Isn't that, come on. That is, you Catholics with all your rules, now most of you say, do we really have that many rules? I've been, sometimes you, most of us say, we, don't, we need some more rules, I think, down here. You know? <laughs> you know. There's a lot of shenanigans that go on, you know? And I'm just going to say to you, we got rules, but we don't. Bowling leagues have rules. <laughs> Everything has some rules, but the point is, I will not be told what to do. I don't like rules, and no one's going to tell me what to do. That's the human, prideful, sinful attitude, amen? And Satan's tapping into that, but he's trying to make God look unreasonable, right? If there's any rules at all, that's too many rules. Now, first of all, he exaggerates, right? Did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees? No, Eve answers rightly. No, it's just the one tree. Only just the one. Well, even that's too much. And the Catechism simply says this. Man, let his trust in his creator die in his heart. And he abused his freedom. And every sin thereafter has been an abuse of human freedom. Okay. Man let his trust in his creator die in his heart. And instead of trusting God and allowing him to teach us the difference between right and wrong, we insisted on knowing for ourselves. And our trust in our creator died in our heart. We were no longer able to tolerate the glory of God, the beauty of God, the truth of God. Our intellects became darkened, so the blinding light of God's truth was too much for us. And when they heard God coming, they hid. They could not tolerate. Now God had walked with them in the cool of the evening while the dew was collecting on the grass. And now they hear him coming and they hide. And there went forth the most plaintive call that still goes down through the ages. Adam! Where are you? Adam, where are you? Now oh, God knew where he was in space and time. <laughs> That's not, it's, it's the plaintive cry of God. Adam, My Eve, okay, you know, get the idea, right? At, where are you? God still calls, that, that, that line still goes down. Adam, Adam, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? But Adam, can no longer tolerate God's presence. Adam and Eve chose the way of suffering and death. And that's why we have the cross. Because God said, all right, you gave me lemons, time to make some lemonade. Sorry to be a little bit of levity at that moment, but you get the idea. Fulton Sheen had a beautiful in- illustration of this. You know, and I don't have a cape like he did. <laughs> but, you know, Sheen could. But he says, he says it is like this. That God is a great conductor of a symphony, an A major. And the first opening note would be A natural. And so he tapped his baton. And he's beginning, and he takes, and he lowers the baton. And the first two violinists say, "Uh uh-uh, ain't playing A natural, playing A flat. (laughs) Dissonance. A great symphony has been planned by God. But the two front violinists who represent the whole organization say, no, not A flat, not A natural, A flat. God says, he taps his baton He says, what was that note you just played? A flat. All right? Let's begin my new symphony in A flat. That's why there's a cross. Adam and Eve, knowingly, remember God warned them, he says, if you choose that, that is the way of suffering and death. And Adam and Eve, knowing this, now remember, they didn't have fallen natures and darkened intellects like we do, right? This was before the fall. So Adam and Eve, knowingly, willingly, with pride, forethought, and malice, said no to God. A flat! And we've been living in paradise lost ever since. But God won't give up. He doesn't cancel our freedom. And by the way, you say, Well, that was Adam and Eve, father. Oh, what? Well, I didn't do that. Yes, you did. Yes, you. Don't don't tell me you didn't do that. Come on. Are you praying with me, church? <laughs> We've all ratified their decision. You might as well just say amen. amen. Oh, that was that you might as well say amen. amen. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. All right, God, you're in the right, we're in the wrong. But God said, look, I'm gonna work with your decision. I'm not gonna cancel your decision. I respect your dignity but I'm going to keep inviting, even on the terms you've set. So you, you may have heard me say this before. We got into trouble through a man, a woman, and a tree. How are we going to get out of trouble? A man, a woman, and a tree, right? We'll get there in a minute, but listen. Okay, God said, okay, you've chosen suffering and death. All right. No longer a natural of paradise. Now we're in paradise lost. A flat. That's, you've chosen, okay. I'm going to work with you, and I... I'm going to come down and still invite you through the way of suffering and death to find your way back to me. I respect your choice. And I'll work with it. I won't give up on you. I'm going to still invite you. You don't lose your freedom. You still have your freedom. At the end of the day, this is what you've chosen. I'll meet you there. I will meet you there. And so... We got into trouble through a man a woman in a tree and God said all right let's try that over again the first Adam said no the second Adam Christ says yes the first Eve said no the first woman said no second Eve Mary says yes and the tree is the tree of the cross everything comes back together and God says I will meet you there and I will not not only will I not cancel your decision I will endure your decision. I will take the pain, the sorrow, and the suffering of your decision, and I'll meet you there. I will meet you, and I'll still call. I won't force you. I'll never force you, but I'll never give up on you either until your no becomes final. Okay, you see the dignity that we have? So I don't have, you know, why is there suffering? Why is there evil? Why doesn't God just wave his hand to get rid of all the suffering and all the pain in the world? Because in effect, he would cancel your freedom and my freedom and say, you don't know any better. Your freedom is just now an abstraction. And then, guess what? He's not even just canceled our freedom. He's canceled our ability to love. If I could force you to love me with chemicals, would that be love? I'm gonna force you all at the end through chemicals and magic to applaud me. Is that real applause? That's not real applause. Your applause only makes sense if you could say, nay! Okay, are you praying with me? So we're looking here now, first of all, at paradise lost. There is, if you will, this decision that we made that ushered in pain, suffering and death, and rather than undo our choice for the reason stated, God says, I will work with your choice, but I'll meet you there, and I'll even endure your choice. I'll take the worst of your decision. I'll endure it to the top, but I'll never stop calling you. Now, another thought about the cross, again, one of the problems of Protestantism is that they, they fell into, again, remember they were sort of after the Cartesian Revolution or right around that time when all that was setting and we were living up in our head. And we, Most of the Protestant struggles with what we call soteriology and salvation come down to the, the reduction of the problem to sort of a legal issue. We had committed, uh, we had broken a law, and therefore God needed to re, you know, restore us to dignity, so he came and his, they, they, they understand that Jesus suffered and died, but at the end of the day, basically, we have something they call a, an alien justice, a justitia aliena. We have a kind of a, a, a legal declaration made of us. We're still a mess, we're still, we're still full of sin, and we're still just every, every negative thing you could ever imagine. Hmm? And um, and yet, uh, he declares us innocent. It's more, But it's more of a legal declaration. Where's the sanctification? Where's the perfection? And so on, you see. That, to them, is a completely separate issue. But for us, the cross isn't just some legal action. It is a reparative action. So let me give you an analogy. Uh, first of all, a, a real quick analogy, and then maybe a more, one that's a little more in-depth. But let's say that, I, you asked me to take three steps to my right. And I say, I will not. And I take three steps to my left. Now, I am not just three steps. I'm six steps out of where you need me to be. And you had a very good reason for me to need to be there. I say, will you forgive me? Will you? Thank you. However, we're not done yet, are we? I need to make a journey now. See? All right. Now, That's a simple example of the idea of forgiveness, which is what we get at the cross, is important, but that's not all that happens. Repair. What if I can't make that journey? I don't have the strength to make the journey. I'm going to need you to come and help me now. And that's what God does for us at the cross. Let me give you maybe a slightly different version of this analogy. Let's say that I'm walking near the edge of a cliff, and you say, don't do that. You could, you'll fall and you'll, you'll hurt yourself. I will not be told what to do. And I, <clears throat> I slip and I go all the way down. I'm at the bottom now of a cliff, beaten, bloodied, I've broken almost every bone in my body. And I cry out, I made a huge mistake, will you forgive me? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. But I can't come up that cliff. I can't get there. So now in your love, in your love, you come down and you pick me up in your outstretched arms. You bandage my wounds, and you bring me up out of that pit. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, that's what he does for us at the cross. I'm talking to you right now about why the cross. First of all, respect for our freedom, our choice. God did have paradise, but we said, nope, want a better deal. Welcome to the better better deal, according to Adam and Eve, right? God said, all right, but I'll work with you. I respect your freedom. I love you. I will not force you, but I will still meet you and still keep calling, even in your suffering and in your death. And those very things that you chose, that's where I'll meet you. That's where I'll do my work. I will go to work in your life at that very crux of the downward thrust of your pride and the openness of my love. I'll meet you there at the crux, at the cross of those two things. Your pride thrust downward into the earth and my love opened. I'll meet you there. But again, I respect your freedom. This is what you've chosen. So you say, if you get mad about suffering, Remember, you and I chose it. God had a plan A. Don't blame God. But again, he doesn't just say, I forgive you. Now get up here where you belong. He says, I forgive you, and I see that you've harmed yourself so deeply that only I now can come down and get dirty and lift you up in my outstretched arms and repair the damage that you've done Again, somebody say, thank you, Jesus. One final reason, I think, for the cross, and I said it to you last week, but let's just say it like this. What is the cross? It's humility. What was the problem that got us into trouble? Pride. I will not be told what to do. How do you conquer pride? Humility. We talked about that last week, right? Right? I won't repeat it all, but simply just go through the litany. It's simply this. Light or darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hatred cannot drive out hatred. Only love can do that. And pride cannot drive out pride. Only humility can do that. So in our pride and in Satan's pride, God does not solve it by coming down and having an even bigger ego. That's not how God does it. God humbly submits himself to our abuse. He's God. He holds the whole universe in his hands and we just drove nails through them. And he still loves us. He opens not his mouth. At that moment, he humbled himself, obediently accepting even death, death on a cross. Because of this humility, God the Father extolled him and gave him a name which is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bend in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue proclaim to the glory of God the Father, Jesus Christ is Lord. Somebody say Amen. Amen. So this is a little bit, maybe, of this kind of why the cross? Hmm? Why the cross? Why paradise lost? Why suffering? Why doesn't God just wave his hands and get rid of our suffering? Why does he ask us to carry a cross? Why, is, is he being cruel? See, he's not. He's being respectful. And he's meeting us at that crux of our pride and his love. All right. Some prefigurements of the cross. A couple of them I think you're fairly familiar with. I think, for example, of Isaac, a son of promise. And you heard it in the reading today. Take that son now and offer him in Holocaust. Very dark moment in the scriptures. But I think Abraham's finally come to a point now where he knows God will come through. God's come through for him now. God will take care of this somehow. Abraham goes. He trusts God. But there's this beautiful image of the the son of promise with wood on his shoulders going up Mount Moriah, a place where Jerusalem would later be built, probably the same hillside Jesus walked up with wood on his shoulders. Daddy, where's the lamb? God will provide the lamb. And that question got wafted up onto the breeze, didn't it? And came down through the centuries. Daddy, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? God will provide. And suddenly, A guy named John the Baptist looks at a full-grown man coming at him and says, look, he says, there's the Lamb. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A magnificent prefigurement of the cross as Isaac carrying wood on his shoulders up a hillside. Another example is we celebrated on the Feast of the Triumph of the Cross. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that all who look upon him might be saved. Remember, Moses was told to take, of all things, to carve a snake, put it on a pole. God, who said, no graven images, tells him to do that. And people, when they look at it, will be well. Now, I, I don't have a long time to develop that with you, except to simply say that, why that? Well, I think God wanted them to say, this is what your sin amounts to. You're worshiping the, the snake, the serpent, the devil. That's what your sins are about. Look at that. And when you start to see the reality of your sins, that'll be healing for you. It can only be healing to a certain degree. But now, Jesus says, we're taking that same image. Look what your sin does. Look how it crucified the only innocent man this planet ever had. See? His mother was prepared and innocent, but this Jesus, Never did a sin. He never sinned. And we killed him. That's what sin does. That's ugly. But look again at the love of God. So in both ways, be healed. See the awful, ugly reality of sin, but also see the magnificent beauty of God and be healed. Be healed. So lifting up the cross, if you will sit at the foot of the cross and let it finally dawn on you, that the Son of God died for you, there's healing, healing. Healing at the foot of the cross. Let me give you another quick little litany about the cross all the way, it runs all the way down through scripture. And I'll just put it to you this way, wood and water work wonders. Wood and water work wonders. As you look at salvation history, you see that water was a very important part of how God worked to wash us, save us, clean us. It's kind of a prefigurement of baptism. But I tell you that water without the wood destroys. Let's start. A terrible flood is going to come on the human family upon all of creation. And God says, get some gopher wood, no, and start building. A flood is coming. That flood is going to wash away sin. But I'm going to just tell you right now, Just the water will destroy. But wood and water will work some wonders. Build the ark. Build it. People laughed at him, they ridiculed him. You and that stupid that stupid wooden thing you're building. That stupid wooden thing you all carry around. That stupid wooden thing. But the water came. And the water destroyed everything except those who were attached to the wood. Those on the ark. Floated to safety. Wood and water work wonders. Now go with me to another moment. They're finally going out of Egypt. 400 years of slavery. 400 years. And they're finally going out. And they're at the Red Sea. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh has changed his mind again. And he's coming after them. they got Pharaoh behind them. And they got water in front of them. Now that water will destroy them. Or Pharaoh will destroy them. But what did God say? Take that wooden staff in your hand and command those waters to part. And Moses took that wooden staff and part of the waters. And they went on through. Uh, St. Paul says they were all baptized into Moses that day. It's a prefigurement of baptism, isn't it? Alright? They came, they went in slaves, they came out free. That's baptism. Baptized into Moses. But listen, pay attention. The water alone? No. Wood and water work the wonder. I'm not done yet go with me now we're finally through on the other side by the way would you with water 30 feet up here and 30 feet up there would you go through hey would you well you got Pharaoh behind you that helps right okay all right listen I'm not done yet they come they say hey wait a minute here we are in the desert what are you gonna do how are you gonna take care of us in this desert they started to grumble. We're going to die in this desert. Lack of water. Moses take that staff, strike the rock, bid the water to come forth. And Moses troubled those waters and water came forth from the rock. You see, it wasn't just water, it was wood and water that worked the wonder. You see where I'm going with this? I'm not done yet. They came to another place. <laughs> they came to another place and they said, "Listen. Now we we, we got water, but it's bitter." Can't drink this water. Moses says, help, God, what am I going to do now? He says, go get some of that gopher wood again, cut it up and throw it into that well, and the water becomes sweet and the people can drink it. Sure enough, the water became sweet and the people had water to drink. It wasn't just water that saved them that day, it was wood and water that worked wonders. But I'm not done yet. Now go with me, we're finally to the point where they're ready to enter the promised land. Yes, indeed, they're ready to go and in. That's the image of Hamlet. But guess what the jordan river is in flood stage now what are we going to do well tell those priests to take that wooden ark up on their shoulders you know they had the ark of the covenant by that time tell them to put it up on their shoulders as soon as their toes touched the water the water parted and the people went through into the promised land and their toes did not even get wet bible says they went through the water the river dry shod they didn't even get the toes wet in flood season The waters, no, the waters alone, no, that didn't help them. But wood and water work the wonders. Are you praying with me? But I'm not done yet. One more time, one more time. Go with me now. Because all those Old Testament things are pointing right here. Jesus has just died on the cross. and they thrust a lance into his side and heaved his chest open and there was seen the heart of god and it says there came forth from his side blood and blood. every time you dip your finger into a holy water font the blessing connects that water to the water that came from the side of Christ wood and water work wonders All of these are prefigurements of the cross. The water receives its power to save and to deliver them and to wash them clean from the wood, and if you will, by extension, the blood of the cross. The power of the cross to save. It's wood and water that's working the wonders. And that beautiful cross is a symbol of the great obedience of Christ. St. Thomas says in the Summa that if Jesus Christ had suffered and died and gone through all that suffering for us, but not willed it, we would not be saved. Because really, it's the obedience of Christ nailed to that wood of the cross. Father, if it's possible, take it away. But whatever you, whatever you say, Father. And he went. And where Adam said no, Jesus said yes. The obedience of Christ, the humility of Christ saves us. Yes, the suffering, yes, the blood, but his obedience, his humility is what saves us. And this power of the cross. All right. So Paradise Lost, some prefigurements of the cross. Now let's look at some of the texts that talk directly about the power of the cross. So 2 Corinthians, St. Paul has just had some wonderful visions in heaven. But it says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to beat me and torment me. And three times I pleaded, Lord, take it away, take it away. But God said to me, the Lord said to me, no, my grace is sufficient for you. For, pay attention now, my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, says Saint Paul, I will boast more gladly about my weakness in Christ, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults and hardship and persecution and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now that can be nice and sounds lo- lo- lovely on a holy card, but for you and me to really learn that requires a broken heart. A broken, humbled heart. A quick story, you know, I was, uh, like most men in my 20s, I felt invincible. I went through seminary. Of course, I was going to come out and personally save the church. By the way, that job's been taken. <laughs> um, well, I remember my spiritual director, Bishop Curlin at the time, said, "Chucky says, he always called me Chuck, he said, I'm praying that the Lord will break your heart. I said, that's a terrible thing to say to me on the day of my ordination. But I came to understand what he was talking about. Um, I was too proud, and I was depending too much on me. And I was finally to a point in my mid-thirties where you know you start to get a little older. And but I was given a task by the diocese that I, I couldn't handle. I was given a very difficult parish that was in bankruptcy and they had a school and it was just in real bad shape. And, you know, I mean, I'm Charles Pope. I can go in there and take care of that. Well, anyway, I ended up in the hospital in the psych ward for a week. And then I had to take a week off to, uh, I mean, a month off to recuperate and I had to come back and start doing outpatient work and I felt like a complete and a total failure. And the Lord broke my heart that day and he said, you know, you really thought you could go there, didn't you? You really thought you could do it. Do you understand it isn't you, it's me? I I sort of do intellectually, Lord. But now, finally, I had to understand it really had to be the power of God. And he had to break my heart to do it. Now, pay attention. I hope you've had your heart broken. Everything needs a crack in it. That's how the light gets in. I never want to go through the suffering I went through for a be- the better part of 15 years in the aftermath of that nervous breakdown, you know, just euphemistically, a nervous breakdown. It would it hospitalized me. I had to take a month off and years of therapy, spiritual direction, all kinds of stuff. But I want you to know, I am a better man today because the Lord broke my heart. I'm a better priest. I'm more humble. I trust him more. I'm not sinless. You might as well say amen. amen. Father, you're still a loud mouth. All right, I got that, but... But listen, I had to discover my weakness to learn to really depend on God, to realize that my job isn't to fix everything. My job is to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Do that, and then allow the Lord to continue to work through other people. But, brothers and sisters, somewhere we have to learn what Paul is talking about here. This is hard. This hurts. This, knows, this means learning our limits. This means the learning there are just some things that we can't do a thing about. This means sometimes all we can do is suffer. We can't always fix everything. God who could fix everything does not fix everything. And there's a reason for it. We run around trying to fix everything and think that we can somehow solve all kinds of things and we get into all kinds of trouble and we make it even worse. Somewhere we have to learn a very painful message that the power of the cross sometimes is to experience our weakness and to realize that I don't have the answer here, but God will work it out. It's hard work. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart, although outwardly we are wasting away. I don't know about you, I'm not wasting away, but you get the idea. The body the body is wasting away although our, our self is wasting away our inner life is being renewed day by day for this momentary affliction is producing for us a weight of glory beyond all compare is that true or is that just a slogan I want you to know that so, what where would you be today without some of the crosses you've been through I want you to just, I'm just going to say it plain, that through some of the struggles and the crosses I've had to endure, I want you to know something. The Lord brought out in me strengths I didn't know I had. He also brought out in me a a, a deeper understanding and a wisdom to know my limits, to know what I reasonably can do and what I can't do. The Lord has given me a wisdom. He's given me a grace. I found out things about myself I never knew. Or is it just me? Is there anyone else can testify in here? Now listen, you, the devil wants you to be discouraged. You just tell the devil I'm encouraged because whatever I'm going through, it's producing. I say it's producing. Producing glory. Now, maybe glory that'll wait till heaven, but even now, I'm going to just tell you through some of the, I have learned more through my crosses than through my pleasures. I have, the Lord has taught me. He's given me a wisdom he's 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 given me he's shown me some strength I did not know I've had he's put down sins to death he's helped me in so many ways through suffering and through the cross he's producing is anyone can anyone share with me I you know and I mean I don't allow but can you just say look he's producing in your life where would you be today without some of the crosses you had to go through where would you be Dumber. dumber lost yeah you know by the way there's a little country song that I like to sort of remind myself of every now and again that some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers <laughs> you know were you praying Oh Lord do this give me this job give me this and he didn't give it to you aren't you glad now or uh, I remember one time she says, "Whew!" you know I, I just I just wanted her to be my wife and I just knew she was the one well she wasn't the one <laughs> And you look back and you say, thank God, <laughs> because look what he has given me, see? Sometimes God closes one door to open another one. Sometimes God says no, so he can say yes. You, are you praying with me? Don't ever doubt that some of God's greatest works come through the nose, the crosses, the suffering, the setbacks, and the trials in our life, because they're like rumble strips where God prevents us from getting into worse trouble. Are you praying with me? Romans chapter 8. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share his sufferings, so that we may also share his glory. Let me read that again. If indeed we share his sufferings, so that we may also share his glory. For all creation waits with eager expectation for the number of the children of God to be revealed. Now listen. I wish there were another way. But the Lord says this is the way to glory. And all of us are gonna to have to go through some sufferings here but are you we're all gonna to have to finally die to this world how do you get to glory you got to die to this world what does heaven cost everything But wait till you see wait till you see what's going on on the other side I said wait till you see what God has for you are you praying with me in our trials we become strong you see we let me just quote you an old song that I, I, I love a lot. It's from Charles Tindley, and it just says, trials dark on every hand, and we cannot understand all the ways that God would lead us to that blessed promised land, but he guides us with his eye, and we follow till we die, and we'll understand it better by and by. And then the song goes on to say, oh, by and by, when the morning comes and all the saints of God are gathered home, we'll tell the story of how we've overcome and we will understand it better by and by. You see, again, through all these sufferings and trials and difficulties, we're getting somewhere in life. We're getting somewhere in life. Listen to what St. Paul says in Romans chapter six. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried together with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might live a new and a more glorious life. For if we have been united with him by likeness to his death, we shall be united with him by likeness to his resurrection. What is he saying? What's eternal life? You know, a lot of us think, oh, it means to live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And ever. <laughs> you know, Pope Benedict pointed out in Space Salvi* that that's a pretty poor understanding of eternal life, and it doesn't even sound very appealing. <laughs> what, eternal life isn't just the length of life; it's the fullness of life. It's the fullness of life. And I want you to know—I want—I want to say—I'm 53 now, but I want you to know something: I'm more alive at 53 than I ever was at at at, at 33 or 23 wait till I'm 73 <laughs> right i'm more alive today because eternal life begins for us now it begins for us now if it says here we're dying to this world and its agenda and rising and living for Christ and His life. The Lord wants to give us a new life, but in order to give it to us, He has to put some things to death in us. He has to put to death some of our pride. He has to put to death our sin. He has to put to, to death our obsessions with the things of this world, having more, our greed. And you know what? That's hard work and it's painful work and it hurts. But when He does it, He brings alive greater serenity, greater peace. I want you to know that whatever I've been through, the Lord has been working in my life. And I today, as a result of my cross and of his graces and of the liturgy and of the sacraments, I am more alive today than I ever was at 33. I'm 53 now. I'm more alive than I was then. And I want you to know I'm I'm becoming even more and more alive every day. Every day, I'm seeing sins put to death, I'm seeing graces come alive, I'm more confident, I'm more serene, and I give God all the glory. But I know that a lot of us come through the crosses and the difficulties where he's put pride to death, he's helped me to trust him more. I'll give you a quick, quick story. When I first showed up at psychotherapy, outpatient at the St. Luke Institute, I was in bad shape. And I walked in, and the director said, why are you here, Charles? And I said, well, I am here because I want to get my life back under control. And he said, until you let go of that idea, you'll never be well. I thought to myself, what kind of a lunatic asylum am I in? Actually, I am in one. (laughs) And I had to learn that trust we, we, we think we're going to be less anxious if we're more in control. The opposite is true. When we let go, we're not in control. You say, Father, I have plans all laid up for tomorrow. Yeah, I know, but it's the contingent on stuff you can't control, like the next beat of your heart. Until we let go of this prideful notion, and God has to sometimes use the cross to put it to death in us, we're never going to be well. We're going to be anxious and worried and concerned and upset about every little thing until we let go of our obsession with having more and more and more things of this world we're never going to be satisfied with anything god offers us the eye is never satisfied with seeing the ear is never satisfied with hearing until we say this world is not the point of my life and we begin to die to it and give it to god we're never going to be well and that's the cross it's hard work And the Lord has to use the cross and, if you will, like a scalpel and just cut away all these layers of attachments, of sins, of pride, and all of our messed up priorities, and just finally say to us, would you please let me do this hard work in your life? But I promise you, a deeper serenity, a deeper peace will come to you. And I'm just going to say right now, I'm going to raise my hand, I'm going to say I'm a witness. The Lord's had to help me to let go of some stuff in my life and you too, but he makes room for better things, and that's the power of the cross, the power of the cross. Now look, I want to just give you some, a quote from St. Thomas, and then some practical things, and then we'll start to wrap it up. Here's what St. Thomas says, he's commenting, this is from John, uh, his commentary on John, and St. Thomas, remember that every, he the, says, the, the Father. Cuts away every branch that doesn't bear fruit, and the, fruit, the, the branches that do bear fruit, he prunes so that they may bear more fruit. And here's what St. Thomas says In order that the just may bear more fruit, God frequently cuts away in them whatever is still superfluous. He purifies them by sending tribulations. And permitting temptations, in the midst of which they show themselves more generous and stronger. No one is so pure in this life that he no longer needs to be more and more purified. Again, the Lord takes the just, and it says he cuts away in them whatever is superfluous. What in your life is superfluous? Now, you may not be exactly able to know all that, but there are just some attachments. And some things, maybe it's to reputation or to this particular career or to this particular sort of situation. And the Lord might need to cut some of that away. And it's hard and it hurts. But he's doing it so that you can bear more fruit. And this is the power of the cross. The power of the cross. Now I would just argue that From the scriptures and from just experience that god uses troubles and difficulties and crosses to do several things for us he uses them to direct us inspect us correct us protect us and perfect us first of all to direct us you remember there was a time in saint paul's ministry where he wanted to go further to the east in the asia minor but he said the spirit of god prevented us we don't know why what exactly was it you know don't know But then he had a dream to go off to the west, into Greece, and the rest is history. The church entered Europe, and it went in that direction at that time. Now, I don't know why, but sometimes God will close a door in your life, and it's hard and it's painful. You were dreaming with all your dreams and everything you wanted to do, and it didn't happen. But God closes it to open up something else, to open up something else. So God sometimes uses sufferings to direct us sometimes he uses them to inspect us first peter chapter one says trials test your faith to see whether it is strong and pure so again trials have a way of testing our faith it's it's a way for us to kind of be in the laboratory and say are these things in my life true if things don't exactly go my way can i still trust god and will something good still come from it Well, in the laboratory of my life, I've tested God and I've found him true. Things do not always go as I've planned, but they always go fine. They always go fine. But again, God is saying, how is your faith? Is your faith strong? Do you really trust me? Or do you only trust me when you get your way? What is your faith? Is it really trusting me? Or is it just, well, everything is great when I say it's great? Again, God uses the crosses to direct us to inspect us is our faith for real he uses sufferings to correct us psalm 119 says before i was afflicted <laughs> i strayed but now i keep your word Sometimes a good little experiencing some of the consequences of our sin is exactly what we need sometimes a little bit of punishment a little bit of hardship it it straightens us up and we we stop sinning are you praying with me So again, Psalm 119, Before I was afflicted, I strayed, but now I keep your word. And likewise, the same psalm later on says, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. So God uses crosses to direct us, to inspect us, and to protect us. And to, uh, to, to correct us, and also then to protect us. Joseph one time said to his brothers, You intended all the things you did to me for harm, but God intended it for good. There are just times when God allows injustices and troubles and trials to pile up sometimes in our life. And look at all the things that happened to Joseph. But why? Why? Because Joseph needed to be there for others. And in order to get him there, God had to take him through some trials and some difficulties. He had to give him wisdom through suffering. Joseph was one of the wisest men who ever lived. How? He suffered. And that's how he got his wisdom. And God didn't just have him suffer and get that wisdom for his own sake, but for the sake of thousands, maybe millions, who survived a terrible famine that came on Egypt. In order to save those people, God had to put Joseph, the patriarch, into the crucible and to suffer. He was sold into slavery. And then finally he comes out and then he's thrown into jail through unjust accusations and through all this trial and all this suffering. God Puts him in the crucible and purifies the gold and burns away the dross and prepares him for a good. And sometimes that's the cross in our life. So God uses the crosses in our life to direct us, to inspect us, correct us, to protect us and others, and to perfect us. Again, the beautiful classic passage from 1 Peter, right? He says simply this, that you may for the time have to suffer the distress of many trials, This is so that your faith, more precious than fire-tried gold, may by its genuineness lead to praise, honor, and glory when Christ shall appear. How is God going to save you? Through your faith. But how is our faith perfected? Very often through the fiery trials. Job said in the middle of his sufferings, he said, God knows the way that I take, and when I come out of this fire, I will come forth as pure gold so again, in our sufferings, God is not just punishing us to punish us, He's trying to work a work in us. And that's the power of the cross, to put sin to death and to bring new life alive in us, to help us to learn through our struggles that we have strengths we never knew we had, we have gifts we never knew we had. He closes one door only to open another. He has to sometimes push us, nudge us. He has to take the knife and carve away sin. He's got to work this work. But I'm telling you right now, there's a power power in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ to put sin to death, to bring grace alive, to bring up new realities, to open up new thoughts, to help us to trust God more, to teach us, to give us wisdom, to purify and to perfect us. In all these ways, God is at work. He's at work. And so it is the power of the cross to put sin to death and to perfect us. Maybe that image of a refining fire, and then I'm gonna just read a little bit from a litany and then we'll be done. What is the refining process? Most of you have heard of it, but I wonder if we really know what it's about. You know, when you get gold out of the earth, it almost never comes out as a pure lump of gold. It's usually admixed with other kinds of iron ore and other types of metal. So how do you get the gold and get rid of the stuff you don't want? Well, you put it in fire and you literally melt it down. And I don't know if you know this, but metals have different weights or specific gravity so when you when you melt them they divide out and you just skim off the stuff you don't want and you keep the gold and little by little you keep putting it in the fire melting and burning away the impurities and that's how you purify gold or silver that's how you do that you put it in the fire and so in order to purify us the lord has to work a work to get rid of things like pride to get rid of attachments to things that are not necessarily evil or sinful, but we want them in too much abundance, and we can't even take them with us anyway, but we cling to them, and so the Lord has to pry our fingers loose, and in order to get us to help to trust Him more, and to have more faith in Him, He has to ex- help us to experience that everything I'm trusting in this world can't help me, I better learn that God can help me, but in strange and paradoxical ways, and I'll learn to trust Him more, and now I'm more useful, and so all these are ways that God has to go to work and through this power of the cross, carve away sin, carve away attachments, carve away impurities and burn them off and just bring us to that great purity that he wants. And the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that we are to strive for the purity without which no one will see the Lord. And The Lord will one day perfect us, but it's going to take the cross. I wish there were another way. That's how he does it. Why? I'll tell you why. Because you're a hard case. (laughs) You know, you're a hard. I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking about me. The other day, the Lord said, "You know, Charles, you're hard to love." I said, "Me? I'm hard to love?" (laughs) Yeah, you. But I I do love you, and I want you to lay hold of this so you learn to love other people too. You know what, Charles? You're a hard case. I'm not a hard case. Am I a hard case? Yeah, you're a hard case. I, how, how, what do you mean? I, I, I think I'm a pretty decent fellow. No, you're a hard case. Look, look what I had to do. That's how bad off you are. Wow. You know, you know in, a, in a company, if it's a little problem, the secretary takes care of it. If it's a bigger problem, well, maybe the, the, you know, the office manager. If it's a slightly bigger problem, well, maybe the, the chief executive officers need to meet. See? But if it's a really big problem, the president and CEO needs to show up and handle it. Well, guess what? When the Lord looked at my sin, He sent His Son, and He had to die like that to save me. I'm in bad shape, and so are you. But go with me now, and I want to end with some gratitude to the Lord. Don't fear the cross. We have a... We don't like suffering. I get that. The Lord gently but clearly and firmly needs to do this work in our life but go go with me now to the cross and I'm gonna ask you just to have a little word in your mind and the word is remember you know you hear it at every Mass every Mass and it's simply this do this in remembrance of me or do this in memory of me what does it mean to remember To remember means to have so present in my mind and my heart what the Lord has done for me so that I'm grateful and different. Again, to remember means to go and to the foot of the cross, if you will, to go and to have so present in my mind, in my heart, what God has done for me so that I'm grateful and different. The lord loves us and he wants to set us free and he's willing to do the hard work and he suffers for us and he's called us to enter into that with him because that's what it's going to take to save us and that's why what we talked about last week is so deadly when we stop proclaiming the cross and its power and we try to un- unnecessarily take these crosses away or not Point to the cross. This is the only thing that can save us. Only the cross of Jesus Christ can save us. We've got to be willing to go there ourselves. But when you go there, would you please let the Lord also show you his love there, what he's done for you? There's an old song that just says, Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing that it was for me he died at Calvary. At Calvary. So we go there. Mercy there was great and grace was free and pardon there was multiplied to me. And there my burdened soul found liberty. Ah, oh, at Calvary. At Calvary. So go, if you will, to the foot of the cross and don't just fear what God might have to do to you, but rejoice in what he's done for you. Brethren, he's loved you. He's saved you when we were hard to love, and were hard to love. He loved us unto death. And so, Lord, I come now to the foot of your cross. And, Lord, I ask your mercy for the sins that I've committed against justice and modesty and purity, sins I've committed against truth, sins against the human person, against children and the young, the innocent and the trusting, the frail or the elderly, sins against the unborn and infants, sins against the weak and the powerless, Sins against immigrants and strangers, against the poor and the disadvantaged. Sins against the sanctity of marriage or the family, against the sanctity of the priesthood and the consecrated life. Lord, forgive me for my failure to show mercy, to repent of my sins, for my failure to curb my earthly desires or to live a holy life, for my failure to speak the truth, my failure to stand up against injustices, my failure to live chastely, my failure to show compassion for the suffering, my failure to guide sinners through repentance or to pray for others and to assist those in need or to console the grieving. Lord, I have so many sins of omission. Lord forgive me for sins committed out of fear, indifference, contempt, impurity. Hatred, laziness, cowardice, anger, greed, jealousy, revenge, disobedience, and hard-heartedness. My sins of pride and envy and stinginess and selfishness and pettiness and spite and self-indulgence. My sins of lust and careless neglect. My sins committed out of prejudice. Lord, because I'm obnoxious, dishonest, egotistical, undisciplined, weak, impure, arrogant, self-centered, pompous, insincere, unchaste, grasping, judgmental, impatient, shallow, inconsistent, unfaithful, immoral, ungrateful, and disobedient, because I'm selfish, lukewarm, and slothful, and unloving for all my sins that I've committed, uh, that, that, that I'm, I, I ask for your mercy, Lord. I ask for your mercy, Lord. I ask for your mercy, and I know now why you needed the cross to save me and to cut away these Terrible sins. But Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord. I know that I've been unfaithful. I've been unworthy and unrighteous. I've been unmerciful. I've been unreachable, unteachable, and unwilling. I've been undesirable. Lord, I've been unwise. I've been unsure, and I've been undone what I've been sure of. Lord, but because of you and all that you've been through, I know this. I've never been unloved. I've been unbroken, I've been unmended, uneasy, unapproachable. I've been unemotional, unexceptional, undecided, and unqualified. I've been unaware and unfair. I've been unfit for blessings from above. But I can see, Lord, the sacrifice you've made for me. And I know this. I know this, Lord. I've never been unloved. I've never been unloved. Help me, Lord Jesus, to remember. To remember to have so present in my mind and my heart, what that you have done for me so that I am grateful and different. And so my brothers and sisters, the the need for the cross and yet the power of the cross to put sin to death and to bring grace alive. And I tell you again, it's hard, it's scary, and it's painful, but nothing is more, more necessary. Now think of this for a minute, what if you went to the doctor and the doctor said, look, you're looking at the chart and they they see you've got it bad and that ain't good. (laughs) But instead of saying, you know, we're going to need to do surgery, it's going to be hard, we're going to need to do chemo and some surgery, the doctor said, well, I don't want to ruin your day, so go home, you're fine. What would you call that? It's a lie and it's also malpractice. Pray for clergy, pray for priests, but pray for parents, pray for yourself, and pray for the church that we'll be able to hold up the cross because only the cross can save us, only Jesus and only his cross. It's the only way. And in our fear and our embarrassment at the cross, many souls are going unhealed. And we, who are supposed to be holding up the cross, are committing malpractice. Be willing to hold it up. Be charitable, be kind, help people to carry the cross. But hold up the cross. Because only the cross can save us. It's the only way. He did offer paradise, but we said we want a better deal. Welcome to the better deal. And now, the cross is the way. The only way. You will take up your cross, says the Lord, and follow me. He'll lead us over the hill of Calvary into glories untold, where eye has never seen, and ear has never heard, and has never even dawned on us of the glory that God has in store for us. But for now, the way of the cross, and through the way of the cross, unto glory, for these sufferings produce in us a weight of glory beyond all compare. Amen.
0: Pray for us.